All right, Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be headed. And we're going to be picking up in verse 16 where we left off in our journey through the letter to the Galatians. But as you guys make your way in your Bibles or you type it in on your phones to Galatians chapter 5, let me just remind you where we have been up to this point in our study through this letter. That the Apostle Paul is writing this letter not to a particular church, but actually to a group of churches, a whole group in this Galatia region, which is now modern-day Turkey, kind of in that central section of that country. And he's writing it to this whole collection of churches. And if you think anything like I do, immediately you wonder, why on earth would this letter apply to us 2,000 years later in a completely different part of the world? How does this actually apply as we study through the book? And so I'm thankful that you asked that because what we see is uh, for the Apostle Paul, he's writing them and reminding them about the liberty that they had in the gospel. The good news, the message of Jesus Christ was we now are freed from the bondage of sin, the bondage that exists in the law. And so as Paul shared with them the reminder, he contrasts that against what these other people that have now infiltrated the church have wanted to share. These People from Jerusalem have come in and said, look, it's wonderful that you believe in Jesus, but if you want to actually be saved, you also have to adhere to the law of Moses. You've got to go back into your Old Testament, and you have to apply all those laws into your life, plus believing in Jesus. And so what they did was they added something to our salvation. And what Paul says is that this is not an alternative gospel. They are saying it's another gospel, but the word gospel just means good news, and it's not good news. It's bad news because all the rules and regulations that get set up, the truth is uh, we can't stick to them. We can't even stick to the top 10 list. And if you look through your Old Testament, there are actually 613 commands throughout the Old Testament. There's no way we're going to be able to stick with those. And so the reality is this is not good news whatsoever. And the, the thing can be said about any kind of rule and regulation you set up in your life. What you know is whether it's to adhere to the Old Testament or just to stick to a routine, a a workout program, a diet, anything you want to set up for your life, what is at risk is I'm not going to be able to accomplish that today. I'm going to somehow fail in this whole relationship. And what Paul is saying is that is bondage. You've actually shackled yourself. You've yoked yourself to a bondage that you can't measure up to or match up with. And so that is not good news. That's in fact terrible news. But thankfully for us, what he's trying to bring them back to is that we were saved by grace through faith. Through our faith in the risen Lord, we can actually be saved by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He did it all. All I have to do is accept him. And as a result, I can now be considered righteous in the eyes of God. It's a beautiful trade-off. And so what Paul begins in the letter in chapters 1 and 2 is he shares how he was saved by grace personally, his personal testimony. This is what it looked like in his life. He then transitions from there and he shares with them what grace looks like practically. And the reality is grace came before the law. He goes back to their Old Testament and he shows them, even from Old Testament examples, back to the book of Genesis, the relationship between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And the reality is Abraham actually had Sarah, who was a picture of grace as a wife before he ever took Hagar, a picture of the law. And so the, the grace actually occurred before the law ever took place. And because of that, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says that Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Abraham was righteous not because he could obey or not because of the law, but simply because of belief. And the reality is the law didn't come for 400 years after Abraham passes off the scene. So clearly grace was God's plan all along. We are the ones that actually requested the law. We wanted the rule book. We wanted to know how we could do it on our own. That sounds about like us. Now, as Paul transitions out of what grace looks like practically, he's just he's going to share, starting last week and then continuing through next week, what grace can look like positionally as we walk in it. That as we accept Jesus, I am positionally seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it look like to now act like it? What does it look like to now walk like it? How can I apply these things in our life? And what I've shared with you for several weeks now is that that is what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's wonderful to know you some stuff, but if you can't apply it in your life, there is no wisdom that exists. It's the application of that knowledge. And so we're going to see Paul now, starting with last week, sharing with us how we can walk in the Spirit. And it all begins with love. What he said at the end of our time together was that uh, you know that you're doing well if you're loving one another. If you love your neighbor as you would yourself. And so it, it plays out in our life through love. Now, chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes, And I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so Paul's command to them is to walk in the Spirit. And that in doing so, they will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And what I find is that oftentimes we have this misconception of sin and how we are to deal with it in our lives. That all of our training and all of our understanding says that we should, in fact, uh, suppress sin. We should suppress the flesh. We should beat it down, give it a good old-fashioned whooping to be able to beat sin out of my life. And this is what legalism always says. Legalism says that I need to beat my flesh into submission. That's called self-denial. Now, we're really good at self-denial. And the reality is, in our, most of our lives, self-denial has worked out pretty well. It helps us in a workout routine. It helps us with career trajectory. That if I can be disciplined, I can actually achieve more. And so that's what self-denial looks like. The problem is, when it comes to our spiritual life, uh, we don't have enough game to be able to practice that kind of self-denial. And that at some point in time, we are going to break the law, and the penalty of breaking the law is death for all of eternity. And so I don't have what it takes to actually be able to accomplish this through self-denial. But the key in walking with the Spirit isn't subjecting my flesh, it's to completely ignore my flesh altogether. And where victory is actually found is in surrender to the Spirit. I have to say, Lord, I cannot do it any longer. You have to do it through me. You're going to have to remake me because I can't remake myself. And so what denial of self is, is I don't even consider my flesh. I don't even think about it. This is what Paul's saying. Walk in the Spirit and totally ignore your flesh. Don't even consider it at all. Don't give it a second thought. And then you, can, then you think about how much time we spend on a daily basis worrying about our flesh. How will I accomplish this? What if? And all this series of what ifs that takes place. And so this week as I was studying through this, my wife shared with me uh, one morning out of her devotional. And uh, it was uh, Streams from the Desert, if you're a devotional fan. And in this particular devotional, what they said is that there was a lady who had a menial job. She worked in other people's houses, presumably like a house cleaner. 
And as she cleaned houses, she had the love of the Lord in her heart. She was so joyful. But she had a friend that asked her, look, how is it you're so joyful? I mean, suppose you get sick and you're not able to do your job. How are you going to be able to take care of yourself? Or suppose the family that you work in their house moves away. How are you going to be able to afford to live? Or suppose you get sick and you can't continue to work. Suppose these things, and the lady stopped her right there. And she said, that's your problem. I don't suppose. Your problem, the reason you're miserable is because you suppose. You suppose all kinds of things. And what I know from Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want I do not have a want because the Lord is going to take care of me. He promised that he would every step of the way. And so much of the time, that's the issue. We have all this supposition, all these things that we begin to wonder and plan and scheme. And most of the time, it never actually comes to fruition. Now, what does that mean in our life? Does that mean I should just quit everything? Just throw my hands in the air. I'm going to sit at home until Jesus tells me what to do next. No, not at all. I mean, think about it. Who put you in the position you're in in the first place? How did you even get to that spot? When you really begin to go back and look at your life and how you ended up wherever you ended up, it's amazing. God's hand was in it every step of the way. And so the reality is he put you there because he has things he wants you to do as you walk in the Spirit. So much of what I want to do is I want to subjugate my flesh. I want to beat my flesh into submission. And what the Lord is calling us to do is don't even consider your flesh whatsoever. Allow him to do the part where he takes care of the flesh. Now, as we do this and as we live like this, what you'll find is things will begin to come to your mind. How can I in this spot pray for someone? Or how can I show mercy to someone? Or how can I show love to someone, especially those that live within my house, right? Those are often the hardest ones to love. And so what does that look like as I grow in the Spirit? And by the way, when you think about how I can step into somebody's life and have mercy on them and and give them a helping hand, you know what that means? It's going to get messy. It is a gigantic pain in the hiney whenever you want to go step in and help someone. And yet, walking by the Spirit... It gives us an opportunity to do that, and these are the things that are actually eternal people, right? Now, verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And so what Paul is saying is that the flesh and the spirit are literally at war with one another, There is a battle going on inside of each of us. It's our fleshly desires and then what the Spirit wants to actually work out in our life. And these things are at war. And if you want to know where the war started, I'd encourage you to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And what you'll find is here are Adam and Eve, the story that we knew from Bible school. And they are able to be in community with God because God created us spirit, soul, body in His image. And it's important to understand that's the order that you were originally created in. Not body, soul, spirit. Spirit, soul, body. And they were able to have community, fellowship with God until they decided to obey another master. God gave them one simple command, don't eat of that tree. And yet they wanted to, because of the desire of their flesh to actually have control over this, they allowed the flesh to take the dominant position. But from the very beginning, the spirit was the position that dominated. 
And as a little bit of a side note, this is why Adam and Eve didn't know they were naked. Because the flesh wasn't on the outside. It was their spirit, you see. So when we read through the Old Testament, things like we will be clothed with robes of righteousness or given a garment of praise, what was actually happening, the reason they could communicate with God is because the flesh wasn't on the outside. It was the spirit. And so they had no knowledge that they were naked because of the interaction they were able to have. Now, when they made the decision to obey a different master, the spirit, in effect, died. They went from being soul, body, or soul, spirit, body, excuse me, messed that up three times, spirit, soul, body, to body, soul, spirit. There, I got it out. And what we see is the spirit went inside them. And so now they have this dead spirit in each one of us. And then the question comes about, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What is all this all about? Why do we have those questions? Because we were originally connected with God and community, and that connection has been severed. There's been a breaking that's happened. What Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3 is that each of us have eternity in our hearts. We have an eternal desire and understanding that there must be more to life than this, but we can't answer the question. And it's precisely why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, We often think of John 3, and we think of John 3.16, but this was a dialogue between him and the teacher of teachers, the most prominent teacher in Israel, a guy named Nicodemus. And in verse 3, he's telling Nicodemus, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse 4, immediately Nicodemus, thinking about his flesh, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, that sounds ridiculous. I'm an old man. How is this possible? Why? Because he's dominated by his flesh. That's all he could think about. And Jesus, in verse 5, said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. There's a disconnection that has happened. And so we are at war because our spirit wants to reconnect with the Spirit of God, but our flesh wants to deny it in every possible way. Now... If you're struggling with what I'm sharing and you're struggling with things and you're battling with stuff in your life, uh, I'd like you to congratulate yourself because you're sitting in a room full of people who are also struggling. We're all struggling with this. But the good news is where there's struggle, there's life. Where there's a struggle, that means there's still life. I mean, think about that. Where there is no struggle, it means that a person is just giving themselves over or they are dead completely and entirely. But if there is a struggle, then there is still life there. And and as Paul is trying to explain this in Galatians, he goes a little bit deeper in the letter to the Romans. Remember, Romans is written years after Galatians, and so Paul's had time to think these things through, and the Lord revealed more to him. And so he goes in greater detail in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He says, For I know that in me... That is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. 
Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but, the, but sin who dwells in me. What Paul is saying is, I want to do really well, and yet I fail. I, I, and the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Why is that? In verse 20, he says, Now, if I do what I will not, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present within me for one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. In verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he finally says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, Within my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Here's the Apostle Paul in summary. Not able to do everything he wishes he could, still struggling with sin. Perhaps the greatest Christian in the entire New Testament. And what he's saying is, I will to do things, and yet I'm still struggling. I take great comfort in that. I don't know about you. I take comfort to know that as I struggle with things, so did Paul. And Paul knew that there was a greater day coming. Who will save me from this body of death? But Christ Jesus, our Lord, he is here to deliver us. And so as I go through this life, there's this tension between the spirit and the flesh. It's very real, but daily I'm making progress. Daily the Lord is working stuff out from the inside out. Back to verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's the good news. If you allow yourself to be led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. And remember, if we want to be desired to be under the law, that means we have to keep it in its entirety, and the penalty of not is death. And what Paul's saying is, is that if you adhere to the Spirit as a born-again believer, good news is you're no longer under the law. No longer can death actually hold you down. And the reality is, when you surrender to him, it's freedom. All those things that trap us and get us tripped up, we have complete and total freedom over our flesh. Now, I didn't put this in the notes, but if you want to jot down Exodus chapter 17, what you'll find is that there is the first real battle for the children of Israel against the evil Amalekites. Nobody likes the Amalekites, right? But against these evil Amalekites in the Old Testament, they're always a picture of the flesh. Now think about this. The children have been delivered out of the world. They've been now directed towards the land of promise. And what do they encounter? The flesh right there to battle against. And so they engage Joshua and the team do in this great battle. And here's Moses up on the top of the hill. And how are they able to actually have victory? Moses' hands are raised in a sign of surrender. As Moses' hands are up, the children of Israel have victory over the flesh. But then what happens, the same thing that happens to us is he starts to get tired. I'm tired of this battle of the flesh. And he lets his hands down, and before long, the flesh begins to have victory over the children of Israel until Moses' friends come alongside. Aaron on one side, her on the other, and they hold up the arms of Moses so that they can have victory over the flesh. I want to encourage you, find friends like that. As you're in the battle over your flesh, daily, wanting the Spirit to rule, find yourself an Aaron 
or a her to come alongside and hold your arms up. That's what accountability looks like. Someone that loves you enough to say, dude, you're struggling. How can I come alongside you? How can I support you? And hold up one another's arms. And in surrender, victory will actually be found. Now, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul's going to go into what the works of the flesh actually produce. I think that's important to note that it's the works of the flesh. It's a literal manufacturing that what our flesh does, they're like little factories. It can just crank sin out left and right. Here it comes, boop, 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 right down the assembly line. And so these are manufactured. And what we can do is split this group of sins that Paul lists up into three different uh, subcategories. First of all, the sexual sins are the first two he lists. Adultery and then fornication. The word in the Greek for fornication is the word uh, pornea. It's the same place we get our word pornography from. And so you get a much deeper sense for what Paul is addressing as sexual sins. Now we can all agree and check that box. That one is clearly detrimental. And for us today, especially with the proliferation of pornography, it's so easy to get access. It's so easy to trip us up. And if you've ever been caught in that shameful cycle, it is shame, sin, I feel awful about myself, I do it again, I feel awful about myself. It's this whole cycle of bondage that Paul lumps into this category. Now, the next group he's going to mention are superstitious sins. He mentions idolatry and sorcery. The word there for sorcery in the Greek is the word pharmakia. Now, in their day, he was speaking specifically about the occult or dealing with the demonic. But it's interesting to note the word pharmakia is actually the same word as sorcery. And when you think about pharmakia, we get our word pharmacy and then drug use and abuse. If you know anybody that's been caught in that life, is that that spiritual realm of the occult and darkness is always interlinked with drug abuse. And so we see this overlapping thing that Paul's saying, you need to steer clear from that. Now, to go back one, we see the word idolatry. Now, on that day, you think of idols in your house, and, and typically it'd be a little wood or a stone graven idol, and for most of us, we have no knowledge of that. I don't have any little wood or stone idols in my house, so I can check that box. I'm feeling pretty good about me today. Um, but here's the thing uh, with idolatry. I would caution you to consider it's anything I'm willing to give my time, my talent, or my resources, in particular my finances to ahead of the Lord. What thing am I committing my time, my talent, my resources to ahead of God? Because idolatry is a big deal in our life and even today in this country, we struggle with it mightily. We can clean it up and make it look way better. But, but the reality is God knows how big of an issue this is for us. This is why this is on the top 10 list for us to not put any gods before him. Because whatever I give my time, my money, my talent to ahead of God, what I've essentially done is made that my God. Now the problem comes in is what happens when I put a relationship or a job or a family member or a sporting event or whatever thing I list out ahead of God, um, what happens when God gets sick? 
what happens when God leaves me? What happens when God tells me they no longer need me anymore? I don't have the same value I used to have. And so you begin to understand why idolatry is such a big deal in God's eyes, why he wants us to be so very careful with this, because time and time again, when something happens to our little G God, it leaves us let down, broke down, and brokenhearted. You see, with all this group, God wants us to be sure to understand that sin is not sin because it's bad. Sin is sin because it's bad for me. He cares enough for me. He doesn't want me to experience that. Now, this third group that he lists out, including uh, unclean, uh, excuse me, including uh, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish uh, ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. I love that Paul included that and the like. He basically got tired of writing, and he's like, etc. dot, dot, dot. There's more stuff in this group. You fill in the blank for whatever your thing is. And so he includes this list, which I would call social sins. These are sins that we commit against one another. And so important to note as we look at this list is that sin doesn't keep me from heaven. It's my own sin nature that keeps me from heaven. It's my determination to continue to practice these things. He is careful to point out the word practicing. It means the habitual use, the giving yourself over to this where before long, you just say, that's just who I am. That's just part of who I, I'm never going to have victory in this area. And so I just give myself over to it and say, all right, I'm going to practice in this area. I'm going to make it a part of my life. What's the old adage? Practice makes perfect, right? It's a practicing until I'm going to finally perfect. Think about that. Perfect the thing that's going to eventually cause my own demise. And so in this spot, I don't know about you, but I read through this list and what happens is I'm convicted by it, right? Like there's something on here for every one of us that we are battling, maybe multiple ones. Maybe there's a lot to check on this box, but here's the reality. If I'm convicted, that's the Holy Spirit. Conviction always leads to life. It points us back to our need for a Savior, that I can't fix this on my own. If I'm condemned, that's from the enemy. Condemnation leads to death. What Satan wants you to believe is that you're never going to be able to fix this. You're never going to be able to get out of this manufacturing assembly line of sin in your life. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And so conviction is what the Holy Spirit wants us to experience so that we can be free from these things. Now, moving on to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And such there is no, against such there is no law. And so the first thing to note is that fruit, unlike uh, the works of my flesh, cannot be manufactured. If you just think about this in the very basic of examples, if we had an apple tree out here in the yard, uh, it's not possible for the apple tree to go What are you doing, apple tree? I'm making an apple. Hang on. Like, like, that's ridiculous. There's no amount of work or effort or straining. I know you're all going to be scarred by that the rest of the day. There's not going to be any thing that we can do to produce fruit. So, second thing to note is that it is fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. Oftentimes, 
This gets taught as the fruits of the Spirit. But note what Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. And without it, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul makes it clear the importance of love. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is so important because if we want to have any kind of impact in the lives of the people around us or in our own, we have to first have love. Without that, we sound like right? It makes no sense. There's no harmony to it because it has no love. And so the fruit of the Spirit is love. But when you bite into the fruit of the Spirit, what it tastes like is joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The fruit tastes like these different attributes, Now, if you look at this list, you can really break it up into two different groups. The first two, joy and peace, these have to do with our relationship with God, between God and man. I have the joy of the Lord, and it is my strength, right? I have the peace of God that passes all understanding. It has to do with my relationship with Him. But the rest of the group has to do with my relationship with other people. It's from man to man. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things have to do with my relationship with others. And so when you compare that and you go back to Exodus chapter 20, back to the law, back into the Old Testament and the top 10 list, what you'll find there is you can break those top 10 into two different groups. The first four have to do with our relationship to God, how we are to interact with him. The rest of it, the the next six, have to do with our interactions with one another, between man and man. And so as Paul is sharing this list, I think it's interesting that you can tie it back to this law from the Ten Commandments, and you can look at a law that actually was intended to usurp, to go over the top of, to take the place of the Ten Commandments. But the foundational idea is still true, that if you want to be right with man, you have to first be right with God. You cannot be right with man unless you're right with God. But conversely, if you want to be right with God, you have to also be right with man. These two have to exist in harmony with one another. And as we begin to allow the Spirit to take hold in our life, what you'll find is the relationships all around, they begin to change. They begin to look a lot differently as we deal with one another. But the reality is we cannot attain this on our own. Just like that apple tree, I'll spare you the example again. It cannot produce fruit on its own. It must be produced by an outside source. It's natural the way it happens. It comes from the Spirit now living in us. But as we cannot produce this on our own, what we can do is tend our tree. We can look after our own tree. We can keep it pruned and looking good because what happens is as we invite the Spirit to live in us and the fruit, the love that begins to take place is as we grow, if we're not careful to tend things, what happens is wild branches start to go off. They kind of look like this tree out here, right? It needs to be pruned. There's branches starting to shoot off all different kinds of directions. And so to have a healthy tree, we have to prune it. We have to get in there. We have to actually go to work. Now, how can we do that? One easy way is spend time in the Word. 
Spend time in the Word. Reflect upon what God's saying. This is supposed to, for each of us, not be a reference manual, by the way. Uh, at least for a long time, I grew up thinking this was a reference manual. If I had a problem, I just flipped to that section, looked to see how to fix the problem, and try to apply that. It was not intended to be a reference manual. This was intended to be a love letter. This is for me to understand my father and his character and how much he loves me. And as I dig into this, I get to know more about my dad. And when we understand that, what happens is this natural growth of fruit in our life is no longer are these things have-tos, they become get-tos. That when I begin to think that I have to work my way through Scripture, got to spend an hour a day in Scripture and prayer, otherwise Jesus doesn't love me. What a bunch of garbage. That's not at all what he wants us to feel or how he wants us to interact. But instead, it's I get to. I get to dig into the Word and find out just what he might have for me, but it all starts with love. It starts with love, and this becomes a natural outcropping of that because Christ first loved me, now I can turn around and love others. I can love spending time in his word and find what does he have for me to work on today. Now, verse 24, Paul says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so he immediately goes back to the work that Christ did, that he crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And when we think about the wording Paul used, he doesn't say that we need to scold our flesh. Bad flesh, you've been bad today. He says that we have crucified our flesh, literally putting it to death. Now, if you think about this, and this is a little bit graphic, but of all the ways you can kill yourself or take your own life, a crucifixion is not one of them. And what I mean by that is I can hang myself, obviously. I can drive my car off the road. I can do all sorts of things, but I cannot crucify myself. I might be able to get one nail in an arm, maybe one in a foot, but at some point, I'm stuck, and I can't do anything more other than to be in a lot of pain. I say that not to be glib, but to say you didn't have the ability to crucify your flesh on your own. We had to have outside help. I had to have Christ crucify my flesh for me on my behalf. He going first, and I'm now crucified with him, which also means my sins were buried with him. But good news, the end of the story is he rose from the dead. I can now rise as a new creation because he rose for me and on my behalf. My sins stayed buried. The question is, do I have enough faith to believe that all the things from my past were crucified. Notice it's past tense. Paul doesn't, doesn't say you're crucifying your flesh. No, it has been crucified. The work is completed. Do I have enough faith to believe that? Romans chapter 6, again, as Paul is expounding upon this, I'll pick up there in verse 6 of Romans 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word there, reckoned, is an accounting term. It means that the account has been settled, that the debt has been paid, that whatever thing you think is still hanging over your head, he already took care of that thing. It's been reckoned, dealt with, paid in full. In Jesus' own words, completed. It is finished to tell us die. All dealt with there on the cross, buried for all of eternity. And we now get the chance to raise with him. My old nature gone, wiped away. I love that because so many times I am convicted that I am still that old man. And, and my wife tells me I shouldn't say the word hate anymore, but I'm going to say it for this as an example, mostly because she's downstairs and I'm not afraid of her in this moment. So I hope she doesn't listen. But I hate it when people say I'm an addict. That's just who I am. I'm going to always suffer with this or from this. That's not at all what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that I'm a new creation in Christ. And so as I might have suffered with pills, with alcohol, with lust, that might have been my old nature. And maybe some piece of that I'm still battling through as I war with my flesh. What Scripture says and what Jesus says is that I've been delivered for all of eternity. And all that old junk that no longer defines me, I'm a new man, raised up in Christ. Now, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So if you live in the Spirit, if you've been raised with Him, here's what Paul's saying, walk like it. Stop talking about all the things that God can't do. My question for you is, if you believe you're still that old man, how big is your God? How much have you limited him? How much have you put him in a box to say what he can and cannot accomplish? Because my God said he can accomplish all things. His arm is not too short. That he can do anything he wishes. And so much of the time we try to limit God and what he can or cannot do in our lives. And what Paul's saying is, you, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, walk in freedom. Walk in that freedom. And what walking in the Spirit looks like is, I now get to allow him to direct my steps. What an exciting life. When I get up in the morning, it's not I have to go to work, it's that I get to go to work. Lord, what do you have for me today? Who do you have for me to interact with? Who do I get the chance to pray for or be merciful to or just to listen just to take it in and be a sounding board for someone. It is so exciting, this life, to live in the Spirit because there's no telling what direction God might take you. Now, lastly, as we wrap up this chapter, let us not become conceited, verse 26, provoking one another, envying one another. It's important for us to remember that all this is not for our glory. It is for His glory and His alone. I love the uh, King James Version, mostly because I still got enough Baptist in me to love the old King James, because in there it says, uh, we should not have vain glory in our life. That phrase, vain 
glory. And when you consider what that is, is, is that so much of the time, I still have a little bit of vanity, right? I, I want to be recognized. I want to be sympathized with. I want somebody to recognize me, to notice me. Even though I'm putting myself out there for Jesus, I want somebody to come alongside and go, hey, good job. I noticed what you were doing. Man, you were the man today. I still desire that. I dislike that about myself. And what Paul is saying is that is vain glory. The word in the Hebrew for vanity is hevel. Solomon uses it over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what it means literally translated is smoke. <laughs> it's just vapor. It's going to go up just like that. When we seek the approval of people around us, what we're doing is we're seeking after a vain glory. Because all that glory they heap on, guess what? They are just as quick to want to kick you out. <laughs> they are just as quick to come right back up against you. It's vanity. My flesh desires that. But what the Spirit wants is to glorify the Father. And while I'm seeking Him, for Him to be glorified and Him to be high and lifted up, there's nothing the enemy can throw at me. There's nothing the enemy can drag me down with. And that fruit, my friends, that's fruit that remains for all of eternity. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to have lots and lots of do-overs in this life. Lord, I think about my golf game and how bad it is and how many times I need a mulligan. Every time I need a mulligan. And I hope people look the other way because i got to take another swing. Lord, I'm so thankful that you give an uncountable number of mulligans in my life. You give me a chance time and time again to take another swing, to take another hit, to get after it one more time because you love me. You love me enough to give me a second chance and a third chance and a 5,000th chance. Lord, thank you. Thank you that all my failures and all the slip-ups of my past were all nailed to the cross and buried for all of eternity. The handwriting of requirements that was contrary to me, that was against me, has been wiped away. And that now we get to be raised again, new, a new creation with you. Thank you, Lord, for making our spirit alive again in you that that thing that was dead inside us and we wonder why we have this hole of wonderment. What is it all about that we can be alive again in you? Thank you, Lord, for renewed relationships. Thank you, Lord, for redemption and redemption stories. Father, help us to be a people that proclaims that for all of eternity and to have fruit that remains. In Jesus' name.